0: Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God.
1: This morning we're going to be in Daniel chapter 11, starting with verse 18. So we see in chapter 11 what happens. The angel Gabriel comes to Daniel the prophet and he speaks to him about the future of the Jewish people. Remember, there was no Christianity yet back then. The Messiah had not come. Uh, In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is shown the future and really the Messiah's advent to the day, his first coming. So in 11, Gabriel is walking him through history, you know. It's good to be warned because a a lot of difficult things were going to befall the Jewish people. They were going to be under dominion of Gentile kingdoms. It wasn't like the old glory days of Israel was a united kingdom and they had, you know, great uh, boundaries and such um, ever since the split of the kingdom and their disobedience to the Lord. The Gentiles really took prominence in uh, what was going to happen and how the world was going to be controlled, etc. So he takes basically Daniel through roughly 538 B.C. And I say the year zero because that's when the Romans really were dominant in power. And then, of course, we know the Messiah came in the first century. So if we could put up the image of the map, when I start talking about the king of the north and the king of the south, just so you know who we're talking about, who are the players, uh, the king of the north is the uh, excuse me, the Seleucid, the Syrian Seleucid Empire. Here's Israel, Jerusalem, right? Unfortunately, Jerusalem was bounced back and forth between Ptolemaic or Egyptian control uh, down here and, of course, the, the uh, Syrian Seleucids in the north. So there's the king of the north, the king of the south, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, when we look at the Roman Empire and the Grecian Empire at the height of their expansion, it's pretty fascinating if you think about it. The Grecian Empire, which was first... Came all the way to what we know as India, all the way east, okay, Grecian Empire. The Roman Empire, okay, they're over here, but they go all the way west to Spain and England. Now, if you remember Venn diagrams in school, those overlapping circles, the information where the two circles op- overlap is basically the Mediterranean. Uh, Israel, etc., and that's why the Bible speaks about these two empires because they really had control over God's people, um, at least geographically. So here's the, where the two of them kind of, kind of cross over. Now you may ask me, well, Pastor Joe, what does all this history have to do with my life in New Jersey in 2015? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to answer that question. Okay The first answer is this is all god 's word, and you can take any part of the scripture, take god 's word, and you can extract an application out of it for yourself it 's the timeless word. Um, the second thing is we live in a representative government, representative form of government, and the Greeks had that when they controlled uh, Persia, and Persia represented the old Eastern monarchies, the kings and the courts and the royalty. So basically, if the Greeks would have lost miserably, we might be living still under a king. But there was this idea of a representative government. It was taking root. The Romans also uh, continued with that thought, although the Romans, because the empire was so vast and it it lasted so long, much longer than we are as Americans, uh, basically they had sort of different forms of government where the Caesars almost became like dictators. So that's two. The third reason is that, is that when we look at the situation, we can see that if we arm ourselves with the understanding of the prophecies of Daniel, then we, have, we, we are armed to be able to reach out to the world that doesn't know God and express to them and prove God. Yeah, there's an element of faith, but there's also proof. 1 Peter 3.15 Uh, And we, we, by faith, we understand who God is because of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but also through history and through uh, prophecy, you can show an unbeliever how God is real. And I'm going to talk to you about secular sources that really, really reinforce Daniel. Now, you may say to me, would you witness to my, would you talk to my or debate my professor or my uncle at the Christmas table? And and I could do that, and I would do that. But I also want to give you the tools to be able to do it yourself, 1 Peter says, with meekness and fear, respectful, not to argue and beat each other's throats, but to show them God. Who, who is God? The fourth thing that we can take from all this is that if you understand Daniel, if you understand and you get all the messages and you get it, you understand the geopolitics of 2015, 16 and beyond. You understand the Western powers and how they're moving more towards a socialism and how they're setting themselves up for the rise of another fascist leader uh, vis-a-vis the Antichrist. Okay, You understand that, because you understand what Daniel said and how this is all being set up. It's amazing how people today, leaders, will say, oh, Hitler was bad and Stalin was bad, but any greedy leader who wants to take ultimate control secretly wants to be like them, but better. They want to have ultimate control over their people. And, you know, actually next Sunday, we're only going to take, I think, 18 verses this morning, but next Sunday we're going to talk more about the Antichrist and really how he fits into the geopolitics of, of our world today. It's actually very fascinating. You can't, you can't pick up the Hindu Vedas or the Koran uh, the or any of these books and find this. You can't because it's not inspired of the Holy Spirit. Only God's word is from Genesis to Revelation. And that's why it has so much power over two millennia and more later. So as we jump in, uh, one last thing is that there was a, a gentleman who wrote a book called The Amazing Claims of Bible Prophecy. Mark, Mark Hitchcock actually counted 135 fulfilled prophecies in Daniel 11 alone. Not the book. I've, that's one of the things I need to get to in my life is reading all of that, but um, Warren Wearsby refers to him um, pretty fascinating. So where we left off was Antiochus III the Great. was what these guys called themselves. Antiochus III is the leader of the Northern Kingdom of Syria, and basically he's this great conqueror, and he keeps conquering the Ptolemies or the the lower kingdom um, geographically of, of Egypt, and then we have the introduction of Cleopatra, Cleopatra I, and if you know Cleopatra. Uh, most of us understand the movies were made about Cleopatra 7. There was few of these ladies, but she was actually the force that was in between the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and the Roman Empire. Fascinating. And then it ended, the, the Cleopatra's ended with Cleopatra 7. So we're going to jump in, and we'll look at this. Verse 18, it says, After this he, Antiochus 3, shall turn his face to the coastlands, and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the repro- reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. So in 18, Antiochus III decides that he's not just happy conquering Egypt down here, he starts to conquer the coastlands, you know, Asia Minor or what we would understand as Turkey, uh, and some of the outlying islands, putting his forces there. But the Roman general Lucius Scipio Asiaticus defeats him. All right, so the reproach or the insolence turned back on Antiochus means this, and again, you know back in the day you know daniels he doesn 't even know who who these people are,, right? but he 's feverishly writing down what the angel is giving him today. we can go into our encyclopedia and go online and find out basically what history was going on there and plug in all the all the values and put the template over it and see every it all makes sense to incredible detail. So basically what happened was Antiochus III didn't respect the Romans' relationship with the Egyptians, insulted the Romans. Well, this was the battle that the Romans were able to turn it around and humiliate Antiochus III. So the reproach gets turned back on him, and they make the Syrian government pay for all these wars, You know, all the fighting. Listen, you put a navy together, you take men and conscript them into the uh, military, it's, it's a burden financially. So even back then when they would beat you, they'd say, now you have to pay us. So it's not only did we beat you, but we're going to insult you further by making you pay us for war reparations. Verse 19, all history. Uh, then he shall turn his face towards the fortress of his own land, Antiochus III, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. This is very interesting because he goes back to his land, right? Antiochus three, to the northern Syrian empire, tries to raise money, for the Roman tribute, pillages a temple, a pagan temple, incenses the worshipers of this pagan temple so much that they mob rule, they attack him and his forces, and kill him. Thus, here's Antiochus III, the great conqueror, dies abruptly at the hands of not even military people, average persons. Uh, pretty fascinating, isn't it? You know, so his, his reign is ended abruptly. The word for today is ignominious, and basically it's shameful, it's contemptible, it's embarrassing, some of these great leaders that, that their hearts were so lifted up with pride uh, died this, these ignominious deaths. It was really pathetic. And, uh, you know, be careful what... Listen, it's good to be driven. It's good to be a go-getter. It's not good to be lazy. But we can take that drivenness to a point of, of foolishness. And we, you know, we think we're so great and we keep doing this. And I would just say this, even to us as believers, it's good to be... Uh, you know, inspired, but just be careful with unchecked desires, with unchecked, you know, to to the point where you just keep conquering and getting promoted and and just to the point where it's all about self-aggrandizement. Verse 20, There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, which was always known as Jerusalem, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So Antiochus 3 has sons, One of his sons, Seleucus 3, or Seleucus 4, excuse me, Philopater, also tries to raise money for Rome, but instead, he goes now, instead of to a pagan temple, he goes into Jerusalem, he sends Heliodorus, one of his officers, right, into Jerusalem, you know, there's a lot of gold, a lot of artifacts and stuff, things worth money, and they got to pay Rome tribute. So Heliodorus goes into Jerusalem, and basically, he sees a vision, and he's frightened, he's spooked whether it be an angel, whether it be whatever, his imagination, whether it was real, uh, the Bible doesn't say. But he comes back empty-handed, and he goes and he poisons his boss, the king. So basically, he dies, like it says, not in anger or in battle. He's poisoned. <laughs> right? Eating something, drinking something, boom, falls down, and that's the end of it. Nobody, Not a shot was fired. right? Not a sword was lifted. So it's, it's to the T. The more I read this, I think, there must have been a lot of poison around back then, because <laughs> everybody's getting poisoned. Uh, but if you read history, this is, you know, the ancients had ways of poisoning you, and that's why a uh, smart king would have food testers, you know, drink something, eat something. Otherwise, it's, it's curtains for you, so to speak. But it's funny, because I'm looking at Heliodorus, and I'm looking at these secular sources, and the secular sources mention Daniel 11. So I'm kind of, you know, it just blows me away. that This information is out here. You want to prove that God exists? It's out there. You just got to find it. You just got to have a heart towards him. As Jeremiah says, you have to really, with your whole heart, seek him. And God says, you'll be found by me. Now, there was a contextual application, but it also applies to us today. And if we could put up the second image, how do we know Heliodorus existed? Because we have the Heliodorus steel, roughly 178 B.C., These things are found, it's great, because they're in stone or hardened clay, and they're very durable. I mean, they come apart a little bit, but they've lasted for thousands of years. This one happens to be in a museum in Jerusalem. It's written in Greek. The king, you know, Greek, everybody understands Greek for the most part over there, uh, easily translated. And Heliodorus, it speaks about his relationship with the king and what he told him to do and so on and so forth. So again, British museums... um, uh, Israeli museums, Egyptian museums, Iraqi-Syrian Iraqi museums. I put these stuff up from time to time so that you know that people actually found them, they have translated them, and it just starts piecing all the pieces of history together. So you want to make your case against somebody who doesn't believe, they think God is a fairy tale? Very simple, start with the word, go into secular history, Pick, throw up some steels, S-T-E-L-E, um, which was this was, these monuments, so to speak, they're translated by scholars, archaeologists. They, they understand it. They receive it. And you have your picture there. So it's, it's pretty fantastic. 21. And in his place, all right, people are dying left and right. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's good to be an average person because you don't have this, so much drama. But in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. They're not going to just give him the kingship because he's not next in line but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. This is none other than Antiochus for Epiphanes. Now, this is what the Hanukkah story is about. Look at all these connections. Hanukkah ends actually tomorrow. That's it. After tomorrow, Hanukkah is over. But the Hanukkah story has to do largely with Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Of course, he named himself Epiphanes or Epiphanes. And that means glorious one. So these guys, boy, they just were in love with themselves. Look at me, I'm a great conqueror. And they just give themselves these huge titles. So here's Antiochus IV Epiphanes, son of Antiochus III. But understand, as we start going through this, Antiochus IV is the type, a type of the Antichrist. So a lot of things he does, I'm going to give you some parallels. There's a thread of resemblance between him, a man in our past, a very evil man who persecuted God's people, and a man in our future, this world's future, who's going to come again, rise, fascist dictator. He's going to uproot three kingdoms. He's going to flex his muscle. And you're going to see a lot of similarities between this Antiochus Epiphanes, who's, who's dead and probably burning in hell by this point, uh, but, and also the future Antichrist. So it's, it's fascinating. Number one, it says he is, he is vile. He's the embodiment of evil. He will come in peace. The future Antichrist will do the same. They will come with cunning, with craft, and with charisma. Right, we look at this from a temporal standpoint. Antiochus IV, it wasn't his turn to get the throne, but he did some wheeling and dealing with some politically powerful people, if you read history, and he takes it deceitfully. Again, the Bible's very clear. He's a vile person, but they don't give the honor of royalty, but he'll come in peaceably and seize it by intrigue. All right, deceitful alliances, uh, very charismatic. Again, the future Antichrist will be a very, also a very charismatic person. He will come, 2 Corinthians 11, as a minister of light. Because you will see this as the people that the Antichrist and his forces can't win over through force, he tries to win over through religion. So there's a political religious system in the future that's going to take place. And if you look at, um, was it King, we're up to Kim Jong-un in North Korea, Uh, There's a religion, a communist religion, called Jusch, and you have to uh, worship the state, the communist state. So Hitler was also, if you... I know people who read, who understand German, and was translating some of his speeches, he came as a messiah figure, okay? This is what they do, you know? They're gonna rope the people in, they're gonna rope in the atheist people, how they need to do it, rope in the religious people, how they need to do it. So he will come in as a minister of light, uh, Revelation 13, he will look like a lamb from appearances and from what he says. It sounds, it makes sense. You know, I'm going to, and again, they'll come in, I'm going to just feed the world. There's going to be no more poverty, no more hunger. Sounds good, but that's not really their intention. So he'll look like a dragon, or look like a lamb, but speak like a dragon. Um, he's going to be, in a word, irresistible. If he was around today, uh, many Christians who are weak in the word might share his posts on Facebook. I mean, just just the way it's going to be. Um, sometimes it's the old, salty, you know, sometimes curmudgeon preacher who's telling you the truth is the one you n- need to listen to versus the very salesy uh, type of preacher, the charismatic ones. Watch that. Don't just go with the appearance. Go with what they're saying and test it with Scripture. Uh, 1 Samuel 16 says that God sees the heart, but man... And this is perfect for American culture. you think the Israelis did it. This is definitely for the United States. It says, man judges on outward appearance, but God sees the heart. So we make judgments, sadly enough, by appearance. Someone's beautiful, someone speaks well, someone's eloquent, and we automatically, I say we as a culture, are gravitated towards that person. But God sees the heart. Now, we can't see the heart, but we at least should be judging fruit. And the Bible's clear about that. Right? not that, that the, per, the personality is part of the allure. We have to reject that notion. Verse 22, With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Covenant, we, we, the agreement, of course, this is the covenant, the covenant of God with his people, and I'll get to that. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. So this is the Antichrist, or excuse me, Antiochus' rise and testing. Again, look in the history. Some tried to oppose him early on, but he was a a very good strategist, very good military leader. He was able, with a few people, to defeat those that came against him. Now, when we speak about the Prince of the Covenant, something very interesting happened. That Antiochus, uh, the Jewish people were going through a tough time, and, and I see the Western church go through this too. The Jewish people at this time were so influenced by Greek culture. But remember, with Greek culture came all their gods. Came Zeus and all these you know, different titans and gods and stuff. And a lot of the Jewish people went over to that. I mean, he did this in way back in the Old Testament. So they were going through a, a sifting process. So Antiochus IV, his idea, and you have to think about it. right? Any leader, if they can remove God from us, because what would we you know, that's like the most important thing to a person of faith. So they try to water down the Jewish religion with this Hellenization, which means influenced by Greek culture. And I see Western Christianity, I see Christians saying stuff and doing things that it's, it's like they watched it on CNN the night before. We need to be more in our Bibles than, than what we do is dictated by the culture and what we see on television. Again, bumper sticker when I was growing up, I don't see it anymore, but they should resurrect it Basically, it said, kill your TV. I mean, I think it applies today as well. Because the TV can be a brainwashing tool. We need to be more in our Bible than we are in the TV. So, what happens is, Antiochus IV replaces the Prince of the Covenant, the high priest, a good man. He replaces him with one of his puppets or lackeys named Jason. Okay? And then he replaced Jason with Menelaus, all history. Menelaus offered. Antiochus more money. He goes, I can raise more money for you. So basically now the, the position of high priest was up for sale. And, and today you can see politics and ministry. You can see churches that unfortunately they get so engrossed in the political sphere that now churches are being run by politics instead of the word of God. All right, it happens. Verse 24 he shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He's going to do something different. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. So Antiochus, now you can see his rise to power. Now he garners support. He's, he comes in as a populist or a socialist, and he starts redistrib- redistributing uh, wealth. Uh, and it's actually a very smart political tool because now you get people on your side. I have to laugh in American culture with, you know, look at the ones who are... <laughs> got to do your research. Look at the ones who are talking about the 1% versus the 99%. That's a ploy to get us to be at each other's throats, right? You see this in our culture. Black versus white. Republicans versus Democrat. Uh, wealthy versus non-wealthy. Listen, I'm not wealthy, but I know wealthy people make jobs and... Um, you know, now we live in an age of the internet, so if somebody's really harsh and they're wealthy, that guy who um, raised the price of a cancer drug, he, he's got everybody against him now and he deserves it. But the point I'm trying to make is look at some of these guys like John Edwards, who, you know, in the political campaign, speaking about the, you know, the, the wealthy versus the poor. The guy lived a few blocks from the, the most slummiest areas in his in his area, and this guy was a multi-millionaire. And I love it because it's public information. You can find out how much these, these talking heads make, millions, and then you find out how much they give to charity. And a lot of them give less than 1% to charity. And then 1% is actually generous. So don't be fooled by what you hear and what you see. You know, like the salmon, we have to swim against the tide as Christians and question everything that we're being spoon-fed. But here, he's going to do the same thing. Europe's doing the same thing right now. They're setting everything up. They're setting the stage. It's a, it's a socialist type of, 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 of political system that's going on. And uh, Antiochus exploited it. Verse 25 He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him, against the king of the south. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacy shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Antiochus successfully defeats the Egyptian Ptolemy under Ptolemy VI Philometor, who was a he was a weak leader, and uh, Antiochus prevails. Now, in verse 26, we see that we see that actually, if you again go into your secular history, uh, he had the Egyptian leader had some people in his council that were traitors. Antiochus IV was very smart. He learned how to bribe the opposing side. And he got them to undermine Philometer, and therefore he was able to win these battles. And then they blamed it on Philometer, when he had these guys in his own cabinet that were working and undermining, working him against him. Pretty fascinating history. Verse 27, both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. The end hasn't come yet. So Antiochus IV and the Ptolemies, they fight with each other. And then when they're exhausted from fighting and they have no money left and the people are sick of wars, then they sit at the bargaining table and they make these treaties. And neither one of them intended to keep the treaties. Uh, And you can read that as well. And you know, I got to ask the question, when we read the legacy of some of these great leaders, so to speak, great military leaders, um, rulers, what do we see? A lot of us read this and go, what a jerk, You know, what a fool. Um, how shameful, contemptible, um, how pathetic, right? Leading these great armies and then dying this ignominious death. My question is what's our legacy? What, what do we want to be known by when we die? You know, what's, what, what would we, if we actually took our life up to this point, what are we into right now? What do we do with our spare time? What do we do with our affection and our passion? Does it have any eternal value? Or is it all about us? Again, we can so distance ourselves from these insane leaders. And that's what sometimes, and it's sad, you can't do that as people of God. We can say, wow, that's so, it's like a straw man argument. But what about us? Where do we fit into this? Are we making a difference for the kingdom? Right? Verse 28. While returning to his land with great riches, his his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. Now, Antiochus IV, on his way back from Egypt, plunders the temple and Jerusalem, reinstates Menelaus, because now Jason, all right, a rumor spread that Antiochus IV was killed in Egypt. So um, some of the Judah residents uh, rose up and they, or under under Jason, which he wasn't a good guy either. They took Menelaus out, Jason came back in. Antiochus, being very much alive, returns to Jerusalem. Oh, what a shock that was when he comes in with his troop, troops. He attacks it, he prevails, restores Menelaus as the high priest. You know, there is an expression, if you plot to kill the king, you better kill the king. Right? It's just very simple. And there's another one, if you support the coup, make sure the coup uh, is successful. Uh, and again, we've... Had this discussion last Sunday. I uh, covered it in First Kings fifteen. Completely different book. Political alliances. Who we aligned with, and why are we aligned with them? Do we make? Uh, Jesus speaks about making friends with unrighteous mammon to further the kingdom, or do we do it so that we can get something from this world? I mean, really, when you we read Jesus's teachings, I mean, they're all fantastic, and they're certainly teachings to live by. Verse twenty nine. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it won't be like the former or the latter. So Antiochus 4 goes down to Egypt again, and uh, boy, is he in for a surprise. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved, return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. Antiochus 4 Roughly 168 BC, he goes down to Egypt again. But waiting for him is the Roman Navy in port. Doesn't realize it. And he's got Roman leaders that come up to him and basically saying, now that's enough. Rome just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And people thought, well, that's a little place on the map. But Rome just grows by leaps and bounds. And he ticked off the wrong people. So the Roman consul, Gaius Popilius Lanus, draws a, uh, he has a cane or a stick and he draws a circle around Antiochus IV and says, make your decision. The Roman Senate says, get out of Egypt and stay out. Make your decision before you leave the circle. So he's intimidated. He he knows he can't take on the Romans and uh, he says, okay, we'll submit. And he walks out of the circle. I think it's funny because I actually looked up the expression to draw a line in the sand, and I do this often. I look at a lot of our expressions and say, where do they come from? Some actually secular sources say it came from Jesus when he wrote in the sand when he was trying to keep that woman who got caught in adultery from being stoned to death. But we go back further and it talks about this. So this is amazing how our, even our expressions how this country and the leaders of this country and judges are trying to sanitize everything of God from our culture, but then stop using the expressions too. You can't sanitize God from our culture, but that's the desire to do that. Everything, a lot of things point back to things that have happened in Scripture and that were spoken about. So Antiochus realizes he can't defeat the Romans, and he turns his rage on Jerusalem. So remember, he's um, in Egypt he's in which egypt is pretty much north africa and on his way back here's jerusalem so he's upset he's got a lot of troops he's an anti-semite to begin with and he turns his rage on the jewish people uh, he you know now check it out it says he 30b he regards those who forsake the holy covenant antiochus had help now here's the hanukkah story it's great and we're going to talk about the awesome jewish Rebels who, who overturned this horrible, oppressing force, but what 's not usually spoken about in the Hanukkah story is the reason Antiochus was able to have so much power is because he had those that were ethnic Jews that were traitors to their own covenant. Right? two types of people in the world: heroes and traitors. Unfortunately, we, we hear about traitors all the time in the in the Thermopylae past, there was a Greek trader who went roundabout about to the Persians and told them another way they could get in because they weren't making any headway with the Spartans. You have tra- you had the traitors in Egypt who were working against their own leader so that their army would lose. You have, you have traitors at the time, the Hellenized Jews who forsook the covenant. They were just cultural Jewish people. And they helped Antiochus to come in and to take Jerusalem a little easier than if everybody was against him. Um, and even in Christianity, you have those that are traitors and i don't get it i mean the lord bought us Uh, you see traitors on the outside that go on tv and and water down the gospel to me that's a christian traitor you god says this and you say something else because you want to be liked you want to lead people astray lead them into damnation because so they can feel a little bit better while they're on this earth that's not doing anybody any favors traitors that get inside of the church I submit to you that Christian traitors can do a lot more damage on the inside than the world can from the outside. All right? A lot of times we see these things in the media about the Bible, and they're not doing their research. But they find a few Christian traitors to go on there and sanitize the miracles of Christ, to sanitize the resurrection, to sanitize the virgin birth. To, you know, And, and they're traitors. They're not, they can't be true Christians. So this is what you have going on. Verse 31. And the forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. This is the Hanukkah story. Check it out. So Antiochus takes over the temple and he, one of the things he does, he erects an image to an idol. Okay, you have Zeus was the... Uh, the Greek god of gods, and then Jupiter was the Roman counterpart. Uh, He sacrificed a pig, which was an unclean animal, on the altar and splattered blood all over the temple, completely defiling the temple. He and his men held the priest down and force-fed them pork. This was a big joke to him, but it was an abomination that caused desolation. The Antichrist will do the same thing in the future. He'll make a covenant with Israel. Israel will take a deep breath exhale and thank oh thank god no one's bombing our buses anymore nobody's lobbing missiles over at our country and then halfway through in three and a half years he'll break the covenant and then he'll he'll enter the temple and set up an image of himself sound familiar pretty amazing we can look at the past of what the bible says because it's a type or a prefigurement and we can see the, the future by looking at the past god's word is amazing so it's this abomination that, that has made desolation how funny the desolation is that the temple was now, you couldn't use it. It was a mess. It was defiled. It had to be rededicated, hence the Hanukkah story. But that didn't come right away. It's funny, Jesus refers to the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel, but he also speaks about it as a future occurrence. Pretty impressive, isn't it? First century, future occurrence is our future. So I tell you what, templeinstitute.org, they've they've duplicated all the, the lavers the and the chalices and the You know, the artifacts, they just are waiting for the go-ahead to build the temple, right? And it's going to be an interesting thing. Verse 32, Then those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. More more wheeling and dealing. Um, As a matter of fact, there were some in the Jewish leadership that walked Antiochus through the temple and showed him what was of value, what he could take. Okay, traitors. (laughs) Word for today is also traitor. Uh, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And, and basically what we see is that there's, you can say even today, that there's three types of people in the world. There's unbelievers, who we want to win to Christ. There's true believers, and then the worst is the make-believers, who pretend, who have no power, who, who repeat platitudes, but really don't have a relationship with the Lord. It's pretentious, it's not a good witness. Um, but this is what you have. 32b, it says, or basically, um, 32b, it says, but the people who know their God, but people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So basically what happens is that uh, you had Judas Maccabeus, right? The sons of Matthias, um, and he got his brothers together, and of course they end up fighting, with the, uh, the Seleucids and the Syrians, and they retake the temple. And basically how the story goes, and it's true, is that they, they clean up the temple, they rededicate it, they push out Antiochus's for, Antiochus IV's forces, and then they're making the, the oil to put into the candelabra to light it, because God said it, you know, it had to be lit all the time. And the miracle of Hanukkah is that, hey, we only have enough oil for one day, and it lasted eight days right? Pretty neat, isn't it? Pretty good stuff. Um, and basically, there was a formula that they had to use. And of course, after a horrible war, war supplies are low. So they, they needed those eight days to be able to get more of the oil and to put everything together so that, um, you know, the temple could continue to go again. So listen, for those that are new to the faith, a true believer is somebody who has a relationship with their God. It's that simple. Right? Back then, today, it's no different. You either know that you know the Lord or you don't. And honestly, we could pretend, but we're only kidding ourselves. Right? God knows and we know. And it really doesn't matter who else knows around us. The most important two people that know is us, the individual, and God. And that's where the relationship comes in. So this stuff is so accurate. As a matter of fact... <laughs> I'm still waiting, I throw out, I ask, I challenge, I say, you know, if you don't know the Lord and you're skeptical, please challenge me, go do your own research, and I said, okay, I've got to prepare for the challenges, so I actually go into my Septuagint, which is a complete Old Testament uh, Hebrew version um, that was translated to Greek, and this was a third century BC, you talk to any archaeologist, secular, atheist, and you say, well, what do you think of Septuagint? Yeah, it's valid. So this stuff is in here prior to these events taking place. And I'm just waiting for the challenge. So I grab a copy of my Septuagint and I'm thumbing through it. and I'm going, all right, Daniel Levin's there. I mean, my Greek is a little rusty, but I'm flipping through the pages. I'm like, this is all there. You know, so you just, it's just what I do. It's apologetics. It's my position. It's my calling. If one of you come to me and ask me, you know, hey, I'm struggling. This professor's giving me a hard time. I'm supposed to have the answers for you. So I just... I look through it, I'm looking, because the Dead Sea Scrolls had a lot of partial pieces. The Septuagint was more of a complete version. Dead Sea Scrolls are awesome, because the ones that are there are, are accurate, and again, they, uh, every so many years, they do a tour through New York with armed security. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are very important, but the Septuagint goes back even further than the Dead Sea Scrolls to prove the existence of God, that he said all these things, uh, history in advance, before it would happen. So I'm just looking through 11, and I'm, I'm reading it. and I'm like, God, you're so awesome. He just, this stuff is fascinating. Verse 33. I could be up here by myself, by the way. I mean, I just... <laughs> this is just, to me, it's fun, you know. And I, My brain was starting to melt down because I'm going and all... I'm looking and I'm following. Oh, Cleopatra's an interesting story. And I'm... Blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm all over the place. All these leaders, and I go to sleep, and the names are swimming around my head. But we we all calm down and we, we get back to where we need to be and just give them this much. They don't need to be here for three hours. So let's jump into verse 33. And those of the people who understand, the true believer shall instruct many, even under this persecution. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be added with a little help. But many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of uh, and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, to purge them, and to make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. And we, we looked in, in Revelation when we covered that, the tribulation saints, the tribulation martyrs. You know, they were they were perfected, they 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 were slain for their and it's happening today, our brothers and sisters, and especially in the Middle East and they and they get to be with the lord and they're they're told that they can rest you know that they, they fought the good fight and they're given white to as a symbol of, of purity not like the color white but just just pure right it's not a color thing it's a it's just a, a dazzling and the white comes from the red blood of jesus so it's it's pretty amazing basically what we find is that you know what happens in the Hanukkah story? It's kind of sad, and you don't usually hear this either. Um, Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus was his nickname in Hebrew, it meant the Hammerer. I mean, this guy was a great warrior. Um, he led a smaller force against the Syrians and just kept winning these battles. But sadly enough, eventually Judas is, is killed. Uh, there's one last battle that happens many years later in the... In the um, the fight to keep Jerusalem and Judah autonomous from the pagans that were trying to ruin everything. Judas actually dies in battle. Um, they finally sent, I think, 40,000 Syrian troops. They just want to crush this resistance. But I tell you, what's really kind of amazing is the Romans watch all this. And this is history. And the Romans, they, they kind of are impressed with the Jews and their devotion to God. So the Romans, for a long time... Allow the Jews to do what they want to do. You guys can worship, you can do sacrifice, we're not going to bother you. It wasn't until all the way in AD 66 through 70 where the Romans and the Jews were at it again, where they again destroyed the temple. But the Romans um, left them alone for a while once the Romans finally took over from the Syrians, who were ethnic Greeks. Um, and when you read the scripture, we know that, was it Malachi to John the Baptist? Like three, four hundred years, there was a prophetic drought. So the Bible speaks about a spiritual drought. That's a sad thing, you know. In the Old Testament, King Josiah, everybody was doing bad stuff, and he goes, "Oh, look at that! God's house is in disrepair." He sends some workers over there, and as they're working, they find the Bible, they find the law, and they bring it to the king, and he tears his garment and, and he co- pro- proclaims a national fast and repentance. You know, there was so much spiritual drought in the land, and then when he started reading the Bible, he he cried out to God, "Lord, this is great!" You know. In Antiochus' time, they burned the Bible. They burned the Hebrew Old Testament. Anybody found with them would be punished. Um, anybody found worshiping would be executed in front of their families. It was a really bad time. And in, and that's the thing. There's like this spiritual dryness. You know, we as Christians, we, we have Bibles on our, our, our end tables. We have them as decorations. We have crosses. We have all this stuff. And that's not a bad thing, but but we got to read our Bibles. We, we actually are so overindulged that we have all this at our fingertips. Great commentaries, great Christian you know, uh, evangelists and such, and we should make use of it because these people would have done anything for a copy of the Bible to be able to have home and read it. The underground church in China memorized chapters because Bibles are so scarce, and they pass it on to each other, and they, they write it on napkins, and they hide it, you know, we don't realize what we have at our fingertips. But the Jewish people for a long time, all the way up until John the Baptist, that's why he had such a following. His message was harsh, telling people to repent, telling them they were doing the wrong stuff. And everybody followed him because they knew that the Spirit of God was upon him. And they dealt with the harsh message. So I, we just can't take that for granted. I just want to encourage us uh, about that. Um, but there was always a faithful remnant. Continuing God's word, teaching God's word, regardless of peril. You know, if tomorrow the government shut down all churches and and jammed our internet so we couldn't see, you know, live streaming pastors and get all the stuff that we have, would we p- be part of that faithful remnant? You as an individual, me, would we still continue? Would we meet in somebody's house that could house us all? You know what I'm saying? Would we meet somewhere and, and continue the work of God and continue evangelism even though it was illegal? Because I submit to you that the majority of the people that are going to be in heaven, our brothers and sisters right now, are dying for that very thing. So you can... T- this is why God's Word is amazing. We're talking about 2nd uh, century BC. You can apply it to the 1st century. You can apply it to 2015 and the future. I just, I just encourage us to uh, just to pr- keep praying for the persecuted church. Okay, so basically the... Um, here, here's the thing, Antiochus again dies ignominious death. He's losing, his forces are losing, he goes to Persia to try to collect more money. Um, they don't know if it's psychological or physical, but Antiochus is a really horrible person. He dies really a slow, painful death, and it starts in his bowels. Um, and he just, you know, epiphanes or epiphanes in the Greek means glorious one, Towards the end, people were calling him Epimanes, which means madman. So there you go. That's his legacy. You now, as we go through the Bible, we can see, and, and we read these last few verses, and it seems kind of grim. But remember, not long after this, the Messiah comes. Right? God brings John the Baptist. He brings Jesus, the resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit. So they, needed, they just needed to hang on. But as we go through the Bible, we see a lot of instances of God allowing persecution to purify believers in him throughout the ages, really separating true believers from make-believers. Now, Daniel 11. Again, a lot of the Jews were practicing uh, idolatry. They were secretly helping Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and it was, it's very sad. Today, it's no different. Number one, to the unbeliever here, this is history in advance. So if nothing else... If you've never heard this before and you don't know the Lord, you should marvel. You should want to go home and and drink this stuff, and you should want to go home and prove me wrong. You should want to go home and prove what it says in in this scripture wrong. And I guarantee by doing that, if if you really have an open mind and heart, you will become a believer. This is the God that desires a relationship with you. To the believer not living right, there's still time to make it right. Because I believe in the Western church, there's a sifting that's coming. There's a tribulation that's coming, yes, even to the United States. Ask anybody in the military, you know, this stuff is going on underground. They're starting to sanitize Christianity. You know, the judges are doing a, a, a marvelous job, an evilly marvelous job of trying to just continue to take uh, the Bible out of public life. The question is, is my faith a fad? Is it a Christian fish or is it really a relationship? I'll tell you a quick story. Some time ago, I have to be vague, and uh, we get a call of like a road rage incident. Got young guy actually bounced around from church to church. He was with our church for a while. He uh, had a, a nice vehicle with Christian bumper sticker and nice interior. And he calls and he says, he has no information on the other party, but basically he sees he's driving through a, a strip mall and she has a bumper sticker of an opposing football team. So this is a perfect stranger. He rolls down his window and he starts busting her chops. Nothing really bad. So she's getting irritated. Remember, perfect stranger. She's going back at him. Then he got into an argument. She's got a bunch of cupcakes. She's going to a party. All this icing. She takes a cupcake and wings it through his window all over his beautiful interior. So I said to him, because I know him, I'm like, what possessed you to start bothering this woman? And he hung his head, he goes, yeah, I know. He goes, forget about it. (laughs) But basically, you know, listen, the fish doesn't mean anything. You know, if if persecution came to the United States, I guarantee you there'd be a lot of people with blow dryers, with those emblems, taking the fish off and buffing it out so no one would ever know. There is a sifting that's coming to us. Now, more people will be gravitated to Sunday morning preachers because they don't preach this they don't go deep into the scripture they just throw a bunch of icing at you and you know what that does is it messes with your blood sugar but this is the truth right this is the scripture living for this life is a gamble this world can only offer you heartache sadness loss rejection think about it even the good times unless you're so insulated and so wealthy that you have good times all the time even good times are are short lived read the news terrorism has come to the United States. It's been here, but they've been downplaying it. Some find consolation in other things. You wonder why addictions are at epidemic levels. At some of that root is, a, is, a, a dis, is, is to forget. Some of that root is a way to escape reality. We have so much in this country, but our, the, the social fabric of our country is starting to unravel. People are unhappy. They're depressed. They're struggling. Right? But Jesus offers acceptance, he offers hope, he offers joy, genuineness, peace, and that's forever. Much of the, the word helps us to steer through the minefields of, of this world because there are a lot of minefields. And many still today disregard taking his hand and suffer the consequences. So my question to you is, will you be one of the few? Will you be, when things get difficult here, say, I don't really care. I'm not worried. God has my back. You know, those, that small remnant, God used them in a mighty way for a season. For a season. Look, even Jesus, worldly people could look at it and say, what a failed ministry. He was killed in his 30s. That's also discounting the power of the resurrection and how his followers were changed and infused and filled with the Holy Spirit. The Roman Empire, the mighty Roman Empire in the first century, second, third, Rome fell and Christianity never fell. How long has Christianity outlasted the Roman Empire? They threw everything, they tortured them, they burned them alive, they separated families, they threw their kids in the Colosseums to be torn limb from limb and said you will stop if you just worship Zeus or Jupiter or whoever. My question to you is, will you trust him, regardless of of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences? Will you take his hand? Because he, I submit to you, especially through this chapter, has proven himself trustworthy. Let's
0: pray. You've been listening to, to every generation, from Calvary Chapel Crossfields.